Welcome back to the continent's greatest podcast, The Europeans. This is Katie in Paris. And this is Dominic in Amsterdam. Are you going to do this for like the whole podcast? Yeah. Okay. So your Dutch class is going well, clearly. Well, I managed to say about two words in Dutch there. So yeah, uh, it's better than last week. It's very good. Yeah, I'm doing an intensive Dutch course and it's really exhausting and I'm going to try and sound awake, um, but my brain feels like spaghetti because I'm trying to shove so much Dutch grammar and vocabulary into my head. What's like the best word you learned today? Um, actually, the best thing I learned today was from the uh, half New Zealand, half Indian guy who is in my class, who was telling me about a cheese that I don't know about. That's just like halloumi, which is my favorite food. That's bad that the thing that I remember is about food and not about language. Did you learn the word for this cheese or just like the mere fact of its existence? It's called paneer. Paneer? That's like a really famous type of, that's like the whole of Indian cheese, isn't it? That's like loads of Indian cheese. Oh, is it? On a related note, you know how Indian food is like famously really bad in Paris and a lot of people just go to London to eat Indian food. And in Amsterdam it's really bad too. No offence. Um, my Indian friend tried to go to an Indian restaurant here in Paris and he got turned away on, from the door. They were like, no, my brother, you must not come in. And he was like, what? What are you talking about? And uh, it turns out that their paneer korma curry, instead of the paneer, they were putting in those little triangles of um, laughing cow cheese. No. Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm outraged even though I didn't know what paneer was until about two hours ago. It's terrible, listeners. Hot tip. If you're trying to eat Indian food, get on the train. Go to London, in my opinion. We're going to get so much hate mail from our French listeners for saying that, but it's bad. What can I say? How's your week been, Katie? Uh, Okay, thanks. Haven't really got much to tell you. Apart from we got another supremely useful bit of feedback from our listeners this week. Listener TJ writes on Twitter... The fact that you use the old Skype sound drives me crazy. To which my reaction was like, what are you talking about? And it turns out that I have an apology to make because the whole time that we've been making this podcast, I have been using the dorky old version of the Skype ringtone to signal the start of our interviews, not the hip new version. This is the version that we've been using. And this is the kind of funky newer version. I don't like the new version. You're such a Luddite. I'm a traditionalist. (laughs) You're a a cultural conservative. I find this avant-garde Skype ringtone very dangerous. Funny you mention avant-garde things because this week's guest is also a bit avant-garde. We are going to be finding out what happens when you make politicians talk about love. And we're going to be talking about that with Darren Cunningham. He is the electronic musician, also known as Actress. And uh, he's been working on this super interesting project, trying to get politicians in Britain and the Netherlands to open up about love. And it involved making music with artificial intelligence. All will be explained after... Who's had a good week, Dominic? It's been a good week for Berliners after the Berlin local government announced that they would be buying 670 apartments on the former East German Grand Boulevard, the Karl Marx Allee. The apartment's destiny had been a bit up in the air after there were some loud protests that had pressurised the city government to block a planned sale from its current owners to Berlin's biggest 
property developers. Residents and protesters had feared that rental prices would skyrocket and these buildings became a kind of flashpoint in the battle against the gentrification that is creeping its way through Berlin and much of Europe. Because, yeah, I was going to say, haven't prices already been skyrocketing in Berlin? Yes, they have. Um, In fact, rent has risen uh, 129% in the past decade. And that is pretty huge for the 85% of Berliners who rent. So, yeah, it's understandable that there's some public resistance. So the city senate blocked this sale and it wasn't clear what was going to happen next. But it's just been announced last week that the state-owned housing operator, Gevorbag, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, would be buying at least 670 of the 700 or so apartments. These buildings on the Karl Marx Allee were kind of showpiece buildings of East Germany. And they were privatized in the 1990s, along with hundreds of thousands of other properties in the city during this time and in the early 2000s. Berlin has for a while had a reputation for being one of the most affordable major European cities to live in. And this has made it an important base for lots of artists and created a very vibrant and cultural city that many people compare to the kind of heyday of New York before it got so expensive. Berlin is not yet near Manhattan in terms of how mad the housing market has gone but prices yeah have been going up really uh, alarmingly. You were hanging out in Berlin for a bit being an artist did you have to pay like really high rents? No, but um, I remember both my sisters lived in Berlin uh, when they were studying not so long ago. And I remember back then they they were paying like hardly anything to live in these amazing big spacious flats in Kreuzberg. Mm. And I was only there for two months, so it's always harder to get short term rental. But um, I was really surprised how it felt almost like Amsterdam prices and Amsterdam prices are bad. You don't know that already. You have mentioned it once or twice in this podcast, yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like Amsterdam is just... It's actually in the news quite a lot now. I think not just in the Dutch news, that Amsterdam is such a ridiculously expensive place to live. Yeah, we get it for Paris too, so I feel you. You do. Anyway, the current coalition government in Berlin is a left-wing government and they are enacting policies that they hope will help cool down the market. They announced a big policy back in June um, that they were going to freeze rent prices for five years, excluding social housing and new builds. In fact, they're not just freezing rental prices, but in some cases, they're going to be forcing owners to lower their rents if they are deemed too high. Mm. And if you want to raise the prices because of renovations, then you have to make a special application for a permit. So, yeah, they're trying out some different things, buying up these big buildings, uh, freezing rent prices. And around the rent control, there's a big discussion as to whether this is actually the right way to make housing affordable. And we're not really going to go into that now. Uh, Maybe, Katie, we should talk about this more substantially with someone special um, on a later episode because I actually find it really interesting. Yeah, someone special. If anyone knows of anyone special that we should talk to about rent control, then let us know because... It's a policy that lots of left-wing governments are starting to talk about a bit more. But there's also quite a lot of pushback against it from people arguing that actually it means that it discourages landlords from doing proper renovations and they should actually just build more houses or encourage people to build more houses. 
Anyway, I have just talked about it, having said I wasn't going to talk about it, but we should talk about it in more detail sometime, okay? Shot yourself in the housing fit there. But yes, we should. Housing experts, talk to us, get in touch, we want to hear from you. But anyway, back to these buildings. Um, the buying up of these buildings is going to cost rather a lot. It's estimated to be between 90 and 100 million euros. Uh... Um, but the mayor, Michael Muller, said that this was part of a wider policy to repurchase previously stated own property to try and take control of the rapidly increasing housing market so good luck michael muller and good luck berlin we're rooting for you we obviously would like the city to stay an affordable place for people to live in yes that seems like a non-controversial opinion i agree good who's had a bad week katie uh, it was a bad week for François de Rugy, who was until recently the Environment Minister of my country of residence, France. And it was a bad week for him because of something called Lobstergate. Uh, basically, he's had to resign because it emerged that he and his wife, Severine, had hosted a bunch of very fancy dinners involving giant lobsters and really, really nice wine at the expense of French taxpayers like me. Uh, he also did a bunch of other stuff that's pissed people off, like getting a chauffeur to drive him around while he was on holiday and getting a really expensive renovation of his government apartment. François de Rugy insists that he has done nothing wrong. And there is, it's true. There's no evidence that he actually broke the rules at this stage. But all of this comes hot on the heels of the Gilets jaunes protests, obviously, which is still going on, actually, going on a lot more quietly than before, but they are still going on. And those protests are about a lot of things, but they're fundamentally anti-elitist protests. They're against what the protesters see as an out-of-touch political class in Paris. So the idea of this minister eating all these lobsters at taxpayer expense, not great. Uh, de Rugy himself says that this is a witch hunt and that these dinners were part of his work entertaining people which is part of his job this all happened back in 2017 and 2018 he was the speaker of parliament at the time and he's made a few quite funny defences for himself like the claim that he's apparently allergic to lobster and he doesn't even like champagne because it gives him a headache so <laughs> none of this stuff was like really for him he wasn't even enjoying it it's not like he had a duck house in his garden it's not like a duck house actually it's funny you say that because a lot of this stuff it does really remind me of the British expenses scandal like it's stuff that is not really breaking the rules it's more just like politicians really taking the piss with the rules that do exist so de Rugy, he says he's done nothing wrong he's suing the website that broke the story it's an investigative website called Mediapart he's suing them for defamation but despite saying that he's done nothing wrong he has had to resign anyway because ultimately all of these headlines over the lobsters and his lifestyle in general just weren't going away it's been quite funny there's been endless jokes about it on French Twitter people posting stuff like Francois de Rugy his new car looks pretty nice and then like a picture of like a really ridiculous gold like 18th century horse carriage that kind of thing and the reason that he's ended up resigning is because it became clear that Macron was not going to stick out his neck to protect him so Macron's own reputation has obviously been pretty delicate recently because one of the main complaints from the Gilets jaunes protesters is that he personally is completely out of touch with how normal people live um, he's faced similar complaints over, for example, the fact that he spent half a million euros on some new dinner plates for the presidency. Uh, so, yeah, Macron did not step out of his way to defend his minister. So it is ultimately au revoir to Monsieur de Rougy. Do you think that Macron uh, has had so many scandals in his government because he rose to success so quickly and had to like find all these 
non-politician politicians? Well, I mean, Derugi has been a politician for a long time. He's been like okay. a member of the Greens for like a really long time. He wasn't inexperienced. Maybe that's part of it. I think like politicians who always who come to power saying they're going to clean up politics always face like a bit of a rough ride. Things always come out of the woodwork and it's like, oh, not doing what you said you would. So there's that kind of aspect to it. And do you think uh, maybe these kind of things have been happening all the time and it's just only now that the French public would find this really annoying? Yeah, I mean, politicians in France and everywhere, I guess, have done like crazy things and put crazy things on expenses for a really long time. I can't remember who it was, but there was a politician who famously spent, I think, like 12,000 euros or something like that on Cuban cigars. So there's a long and proud history of this kind of thing in France, which was part of the reason why Macron got elected in the first place, right? Like he said, I am not going to be like them. I am going to be a break from the past. No more of the old politics. One of the first, I think the first law that he passed was a law to try and clean up politics. So yeah, he really made that like a big thing when he came in. Well, not a good look then. Not a great look. The bright side of this is that he's been replaced by the transport minister, Elisabeth Borne. So she's now going to be in charge of transport and the environment, which is kind of interesting way of combining two policy areas. Not sure how I feel about that. But her being appointed means that for the first time ever, France has more female ministers than male ones, which is kind of cool. That is cool. Hmm. It's almost a happy ending. <laughs> almost is. Should we just do that now? Let's cut the podcast short. Well, no, let's not, because we've actually got a very nice interview coming up. Um, We are about to move into the world of electronic music, where we're going to be speaking to one of the most celebrated and pioneering artists in this field. Darren Cunningham is known by his stage name, Actress, and he was recently asked by the Holland Festival in Amsterdam and the Southbank Centre in London to create a new work in response to a fragment of this most bombastic of all operas, Stockhausen's Auslicht. Isn't Stockhausen the guy who wrote that opera that you saw, the really long one? This is the same opera. Oh! Yeah, so it was in response to the opera, that really long opera that I saw, um, which is a piece by this German experimental composer, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, which, if performed in its entirety, takes seven days to be performed. And when you saw it had a helicopter in it yeah there is a movement with a string quartet in four different helicopters yes okay fine so actress created a new performance with singers from the netherlands kammerkor in response to one of the movements from auslicht a movement called welt parliament or world parliament in stockhausen's original piece it depicts a sitting of parliament in which the president asks for the chamber to debate the meaning of the word love Darren was interested in actually doing this with real politicians, so he went to the Dutch and the British parliaments and hosted debates about love to create material for the performances. Quite a wild idea. So we wanted to call him up and find out how it went and speak to him about his fascinating work more broadly. Here comes a new Skype jingle. How did this idea come about in the first place to take a German opera from the 1990s and like reimagine it for the 21st century? Yeah, we were approached by the Holland Festival basically saying that they were going to be curating a series of events focused on Stockhausen. And um, it was quite open in terms of what the reinterpretation or what the piece of music could be. And they gave us a couple of options and out of the options that were presented, Velt Parliament was the one that immediately sort of resonated with me. 
the idea just came to me immediately that it, for the context of the realities of the world at the moment and Brexit and a whole load of different other, a lot of dysfunction at the moment going on in the world. And I don't tend to talk too much about politics in my music or through social media stuff like this. Um, but obviously I have an interest in politics and I follow it. I have my views on it. And um, yeah, vote Parliament just seemed to me anyway, it just presented a vast opportunity to reinterpret this particular idea. Just like, okay, I'm not going to sit there and try and create something that is Stockhausen or try and resample the work that he's already done. I want to try and find an interesting way or an innovative way that actually generates the work itself. And the best way that I could think at that particular time was just to see if it was possible to approach members of parliament or people in industry or anybody who has like um, is like at the forefront of social awareness or, you know, speaking about equal rights and all these sort of things and just having a conversation. And then out of those conversations, try to basically reprogram different words to create a, a sort of a, a story based on love. And so in the end, you ended up hosting like some debates, both with Dutch and British politicians about love. Um, that's like quite a bold thing to get politicians to talk to about I guess I mean it shouldn't be but I think it is in this world um I was wondering how did they how did these two respective groups of people uh respond to this challenge well I mean that in itself was quite complex because originally um the idea from my perspective was for it to be specifically British and then it was suggested hey we've got some interest from the Dutch parliament do you want to go and do that as well so that kind of broke my brain a little bit because I was like, oh, okay, it really is now a question of language and different ideologies because the system in the UK, that sort of dominant two-party, stroke three-party setup is not the same in Holland. There's like, it's quite disparate and there's quite a lot of parties and I'm quite used to British politics, the mannerisms and the way that people communicate with one another and you know, I've got a pretty good idea in terms of the political landscape, in terms of Thatcherism, New Labour, and then to sort of process a completely different system. It was a real challenge. Um, because of the climate, because of the Brexit climate, because of the time that we were actually doing the debate, it was really stressful, actually, for a lot of people. There was a lot of stress going on. There was real sort of torsion going on in terms of what the Conservative Party was doing to itself at that particular time. So what I found from the debates was people were focusing a lot on themselves, actually, how they were feeling in the current environment. It just seemed like a, a locked perspective. And so, you know, it was quite interesting to try and derive any love out of that particular atmosphere. And then to go to Holland to do it with um, the Dutch members of Parliament was completely different because we were, they're not in the same situation. They covered subjects which I'm not so used to, so like, you know, emancipation and things like this. And their social awareness is looking at things like um, teen suicides and care for the old people. But in a very sort of, it's just a, a system that I'm not very used to. So I really did have to, again, sort of like tap in and focus on like the different political landscapes. That was really fascinating. Um, and then sort of mix 
the two together. So in terms of like, I got British transcripts that were obviously written out in English, and then I got Dutch transcripts which were written out in Dutch. I had those translated into English as well. So I would lift out certain bits which resonated with me poetically and sort of try to create a, a sort of a story for each character and then do the same for the English characters and, and you know, splice those together as well. So there was a lot of cutting and pasting, a lot of chopping up text and then feeding it back into the computer and recontextualizing it and then sort of creating a libretto out of that. Can you give me a, a couple of examples maybe of like some of the things that politicians said on either side that really resonated with you? There was some interesting um, angles on equality, homosexuality. One of the politicians that we spoke to had recently stood up in, in the House of Parliament to declare the fact that they were HIV. So that was quite an impassioned, romantic, philosophical sort of safe space actually for this person to actually talk about that but again mixing it with how they're getting um social media you know because the closeness of social media to public figures these days it's easier for trolls to just direct any sort of abuse at you without any sort of just this sort of everyday hate really um that's what i was getting a lot from particularly from british politicians that they were receiving a lot of hate from members of the public and this was also something that i wanted to get into the opera as well in the sense that um you know the way that the libretto is broken down the intro is basically the politicians are being transported from one building to another building to conduct the debate. But as they're leaving one building to go to this debate, they have to encounter the public and the public are screaming at them and throwing abuse at them, much like it was going on at Brexit at that particular time when people were gathering with their flags and start Brexit and all this sort of stuff, you know. I wanted to get that sort of pressure within the actual piece. You know, that atmosphere was, was just zebra, really. So I wanted to get that and then to transition from that into like uh, this sort of like a futuristic idea of like what the landscape could be and how conversations relating to legislations, they are human interactions, but at some point they all get ciphered off into a computer and essentially it is the computer that decides out of all of this language, out of all of this sort of arbitrary syntax and whatever, it puts it together and it processes an AI version of that conversation. Yeah, you used AI uh, in this performance and you've used AI in quite a lot of your work, I believe. And we had an interview on our podcast a few weeks ago looking at how AI and autonomous weapons are like the future of warfare, um, which was rather terrifying. Um, I wonder whether you also, do you think that AI is also the future of music? I think, yeah, and it has been for a long time, I would say, but in different ways. For me, the reason why I'm getting into AI is purely just because I recognise that um, as much as I love making music, for the amount of work that I have to do and for the amount of ideas that I want to piece together, it's impossible for me to do that by myself. So, yeah, I've got like six computers in my studio that are running different programmes and constantly creating ideas all the time and then I go back and put these ideas together so it is an autonomous studio it's working all the time and it has to be like that um this isn't my opinion but I just want to be controversial really and stir things up um some people might suggest that if you use AI to make music 
it isn't music anymore because music is about like human creativity. So like using a computer to make decisions for you about like what sound is going to come out makes it not music anymore. Like, what do you think about that? Depends what you think music is. Um, I'll defer to Dominic on that. He's a musician around here. <laughs> no, it was your argument, Katie. I'm not going to get any involved. <laughs> it's not even my argument. I just wondered. Okay, the rain falls and it hits the roof. That to me is, is music because it forms a rhythmical pattern, but I'm not doing that. It's nature that's doing that. Computer is nature as well. AI is essentially nature. It's technology to me is also nature. It's created through human nature. Human natural thought has gone into AI. It is essentially a reflection of human nature. I'm just thinking and enjoying and marveling at how science can come together when you use computers and when you use language. I'm giving something an instruction. You know, the computer isn't just producing the sound, it's producing the sound that I like. So I'm in control of the process at every step of the way. So I didn't push back at the time, but do we really think computers are nature? Does that mean that Skype and I are part of the same natural entity and we should be friends? And the new Skype ringtone is nature. Yes, and we are one and the same. That's beautiful. I don't know if I buy it, though. I feel like intrinsically opposed to Skype and I feel like it hates me. Not convinced. For our happy ending this week, we have an extraordinary story from Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, where a team of medics have successfully separated twins who were conjoined at the skull. The two girls, Safa and Marwa, were born in Pakistan in the winter of 2017 and their parents were initially told that separation surgery would almost certainly lead to the death of one of them. However, they soon met Dr Gilani, a neurosurgeon at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London who heads up a team that had successfully separated two other sets of twins conjoined similarly. This doctor gave them hope and they spent two years raising funds and visas for the incredibly complicated and drawn out separation process. A team of 100 people worked on the separation and sometimes there were 20 people working at one time in the operating room. The twins spent in total 50 hours in surgery, not all in one go. And the process sounds impossibly complicated and included inserting a piece of plastic between the two brains and building separate skulls from their own bone matter. Wow. It required more than £1.3 million, which was fundraised especially for this. But the twins are now out of the hospital. And Dr. Gilani said that he is optimistic that by their third birthday, they should be walking. It really is an extraordinary surgery and if you'd like to know more about the process then I'd recommend the extended read on the BBC from Rachel Buchanan. Uh, We'll post a link in the show notes. Doctors are really magicians, aren't they? This is just one of those moments where you're like, they are incredible, the things that they do. Yeah. We just make a stupid podcast. Hey. I mean, what are we doing? Hey, it's all nature. That is it from us for another week. But fear not, we are around between podcasts on the internet, reading your tweets at Europeans Pod, posting pictures at Europeans Podcast on Instagram, 
Um, and we post various things on Facebook too. Old school, I know. Uh, you can find us just by typing in the Europeans podcast. There's also a secret special Facebook group for our very generous Patreon supporters. Uh, the newest of whom? Of which? What's the grammar there? Whom? I've never known. Don't ask me. We've established this. We don't know. I could know say it in Dutch. Our own language. <laughs> don't. Please don't. The newest of whom is uh, Francesca Baldassari in Italy. Thank you so much, Francesca. I'm actually heading to Italy next week on holiday, so our recording might well come from Tuscany. Oh, lucky. If you like the show but are short on cash, another thing you can do to help us out, apart from donating on Patreon, is to write a nice review on the website known as Apple Podcasts, which helps other people to find us. I will stick a little link there, right there on the screen. We'll be back next week with another show. Maybe Katie will sound a little bit more relaxed because she'll be in Italy, but... Maybe I just won't turn up at all. Maybe I'll do the whole show in, in Dutch next week. Because I'm hoping by the end of my second week, I will be fluent. That sounds great. We're all very excited about that, Dominic. Please come back and listen. I promise I won't do it in Dutch. Good to know. See you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye.